start to treat, let's say, like a person over 70 have never, never uh, taken cannabis and you don't explain that it's possible that you can have uh, a little acceleration of the heart and it happens that he gets, uh, the heart beating increases, he gets nervous, he says, oh God, what is this? Why did I take this, this drug? Everybody told me I should not have taken it and you can get a panic attack and you're never going to touch this medicine never again. This is the Cannabis Enigma, cutting through the smoke to have informed, serious conversations for regular people. Hi, I'm Michael Schaefer-Omerman. And I'm Alana Goldberg. So who's this week's interview with? This is an interview that I did on the sidelines of the Portugal Medical Cannabis Conference in Lisbon. It's with a German doctor called Janos Krantz. Uh, he was trained in uh, medical school in Barcelona in Spain, and now he's back working in Berlin. Spoiler alert, I've actually listened to the interview already. And one of the things that stood out to me is how he explained that in Spain, despite there not actually being a medical cannabis program, that in many ways, at least compared to Germany, it's a little bit more developed, at least from his perspective as a prescribing doctor. Yeah, absolutely. And it all kind of comes down to, to cannabis culture and just straight cultural differences between, between these countries. Spain um, is a lot looser, a more liberal society, um, and is more open to these sorts of uh, alternative therapies, despite not having a medical cannabis program. And in Germany, where the medical cannabis program is more developed, it's a more conservative society. And so doctors and patients alike uh, are less open um, to cannabis therapies. I imagine that that means he has to approach his patients a little bit differently. Yeah, absolutely. And also his fellow physicians. I feel like there's something about being a doctor who specializes in cannabis that I don't know if it requires it, but that lends itself to having a more sort of wholesome um, and holistic approach. Yeah, I think you're right. And I experienced that at this conference in general with a lot of physicians that that I spoke to. I think probably doctors that are open to these uh, newer therapies on the market are naturally um, have a more holistic view of their patients. Um, a lot of these doctors are talking about uh, diet and exercise and sleep together with uh, cannabis therapies to, to increase wellness and health in their patients. My doctor keeps telling me to go to yoga, but she's never recommended cannabis. Well, maybe soon. <laughs> so let's listen to the interview. Um, and also, when we finish speaking with Yunosh, stick around because I sat down with Dr. Roni Sharon, a neurologist and the medical director here at Kenigma, and we talked about sleep and uh, medical cannabis, who it's good for, how it works, and what kind of success rates he sees with his patients. All right, let's listen to the interview with Dr. Krantz. Hi, Anos. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me here. So I'd like to start off asking you, why cannabis? How did you get into this field? It's a funny question. I mean, of course, like, uh, let me think. I started, like, the first contact with it came, like, the, I think the fifth, the fourth or the fifth year of med school. I had a really good, flat, my flatmate from Barcelona um, was from California, from Salinas. So I went to visit him. I spent there three months in California. 
and I paid more attention. I said, wow, what's this going? What's going on here? The dispensaries, you had medical cannabis, which in med school nobody was talking about. And I was a young doctor and I said, okay, this is interesting. And then I came back and then the last two years I started to, to read a little bit about it here and there in Spain with the help of the International Association of Cannabis Medicine, the Observatorio Español. There are like a couple of the only things you could find back in 2014. There was not so much uh, uh, so easy access to all that information as well. And then finished uh, med school and I decided to take a little break to think about what I'm going to do. And I started to read more and more and more about it. And then I started to work in Calapa Clinic in Barcelona. And from there on, it kind of kept going, kept going. So mm -hmm. this was the beginning was super random uh, by a visit in, in California, seeing it and then starting to read and to get through all this information. Can you tell us about the Calapa Clinic? Uh, what happens there? Calapa Clinic is one of the first clinics in, in Europe which have treated with, with cannabinoid medicine in a controlled way. Let's say there were like different... Uh, doctors alone working in, in some places but Calapa was the first clinic together and, and pretty much just attending patients we have Mariano Garcia de Palau who works like for over 10-15 years with cannabinoids in, in, in this way and it's more like a little clinic uh, with 4 to 5 doctors now uh, where we attend patients and, and try to do the best out of the situation which, which is in Spain there. So this is more suggesting and helping out, but it's interesting, of course. It's okay. nice. Um, can you tell us about the medical cannabis program in Spain? What's access like? Uh, what conditions can you prescribe for? In Spain, the access is, there's no access. There's no medical mm -hmm. cannabis in Spain. That's why I see in Spain the, the, the work is limited because <clears throat> for the state there's like no... Uh, cannabinoids in the pharmacopoeia Spain, mm. uh, in the Spanish pharmacopoeia um, just Sativex but you can just use it for MS so it's not, uh, an off-label use is not possible um, but in Spain uh, you have uh, cannabis clubs and people try the best out of this, there are of course oils, there are oils which are better controlled there are oils that are worse controlled but in generally let's say you can find oils which are controlled in a way that you know no pesticides no heavy metals uh, no fungus and you know how much THC cannabinoid CBD it's inside it's in a small case not the GMP certified uh, products but you have stuff which you can work and that's pretty much how, how it goes this there's like a gray zone in the law which allows uh, the, the, that's why uh, in Spain there exist cannabis clubs mm -hmm. it's a little bit like in uh, in the Netherlands but you need to be a member right. so you need to register and then you can get uh, cannabis which you can have inside the club or at your home mm -hmm. on the way back for example it's illegal that's the situation it's a little bit weird in Spain because you have kind of recreational cannabis but you don't have medical right. but this is open all this this gray zone that's a little bit why in the in the last year I moved to, to Germany I mean I'm from Germany I went to study to, to Spain and I'm now back in Berlin and in Germany yes we can like work completely open uh, with cannabis we have like 42 strains uh, at the currently uh, a couple of oils there's Dronabinol Sativex you can prescribe and under conditions it's covered as well from health insurance or so it's uh, a little it, it's way more open and way more interdisciplinary to work there right I guess, I guess that gives you a lot more uh, freedom as a, as a physician to treat patients I mean in in Calapa there's a lot, lot more knowledge about it they know way more they have super experienced doctors and it's more they know about the plant how it works from the beginning to the end mm -hmm. <clears throat> 
And this is something what, for example, in, in, in Germany is missing. So a little bit both sides are the same important. Now in Germany, I can do whatever I want to do, but I can do that because I, I learned in Spain how, how to use the plants, how it works, how, how from how the endocannabinoid, what the endocannabinoid system is, how it works. So now it's just modifying it and using the possibility, but the base comes from Spain, definitely. Right, interesting. Um, we hear a lot about patients uh, talking about dosing and how difficult it is to kind of find the right place. Can you walk us through what you do when you have a new uh, patient come in who either, either they want to try cannabis or, or you suggest it to them? Can you kind of walk me through the process? I mean, first of all, what is important, of course, that you uh, read the background to study the patient. I mean, you need some information. Frequently, people come um, <clears throat> to the doctor or the, the pain therapist. And in, the, in the, this case, for example, um, they uh, you don't know them from the past. They know their GP from the past, and then they come to some specialist. So you have to learn new about the patient. Mm -hmm. So it's very important the, the the paperwork I get from the colleagues, for example. This, but this is the pr preparation of the patient. You read through it. And then for me, the first consultation, the first contact with the patient, it's very important. That's why it should be longer. You should learn about who is there. Uh, what kind of person is this? I mean, there's like, of course, there's, um, is she, and he or does she, or she anxious or not? How does she normally react to, to drugs in general, uh, medical drugs in general, or to alcohol, for example, mm -hmm. to see it, see it. There's people with the probability if she gets with half a beer drunk, it's, makes it more probable as well that with the lower dose of cannabis or the, the, she can handle less the, the psychoactive properties for example I'm not talking about scientific uh, uh, evidence stuff but it's a little bit it's what you have like this feeling when you meet somebody that you generally react more sensitive or not about the patient mm -hmm. and to estimate what kind of patient uh, I have in front of me it's one of the most important things to know how, how I start dosing at least mm -hmm. if I um, if I think that's a person who's going to react a little bit sensitive or never has used cannabis before, I start really low and we have more. We are talking almost all the time about chronic conditions. So so you have, it's not depending on one or two days. It's better that you get it in the right way that to jump off. If it's a critical moment, you need to act quickly. But in this case, it's mostly we have the time. And if I suspect that it's a sensitive patient, I start dosing step by step. You increase by night. So if you have uh, the psychoactive effect is bothering you, you sleep it through. So it's, it's a little bit easier to create that tolerance that later brings you uh, forward to, to a little bit higher dosing. Mm -hmm. But in general, it's this like estimate. Talk about the patient. He should explain to look what what we have here. We have to talk, of course, like through uh, cardiologic uh, diseases, uh, psychiatric diseases as well in the family, all that kind of stuff. This is important, not for the first consultation if you start low but it's important to 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 have it all the documentation and stuff of course and regarding if somebody had a, a heart attack or or, or or something like a problem with the heart we we have to pay attention of thc for example because it can increase the heart rate it's not the thc doing the harm but it, we can have some tachycardia if you're not used to 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 thc and if we have that on a patient which had a severe heart condition it can be problematic mm -hmm. But there's a couple of protocols. The most important thing is the, what I said before, to look what kind of patient I have in front of and then depending on who, who he is, starting lower or intermediate. Mm -hmm. Then depending on the condition, of course, what you use. One kind of, you know, the other, in which proportion that depends on the patient. We're here, obviously, at the conference and you mentioned uh, that guidelines are something that doctors uh, uh, work with for better or for worse at the moment. Uh, do you have specific products that you use for specific conditions as, as at least a starting point? I mean, we, and 
I've worked in Spain. I'm working uh, Spain and Portugal and in, in in Germany now. Um, we have to adapt to the condition where we are. I've just come back from two conferences in Buenos Aires and Santiago de Chile, and there are people asking you the same questions, but in their system. And we have the impression that worldwide in every country there's like kind of a different stone at a different point of the way, but there's like no place it's working completely, but it's kind of missing at one or the other point. So it's always nice to exchange generally and to see uh, uh, where's the problem at other parts. But but you always have to adapt to the to the to the condition where you are in Germany right now. I have, for example, access to to a lot of different strains, uh, the uh, herbal uh, uh, herbs, but uh, two oils. And then you have Dronabinol as a synthetic Sativex. So this is like kind of a weird situation. For example, I mean, in Spain, we pretty much almost uh, worked only with, with sublingual oils, mm -hmm. which I think it's like you can combine it, but it's a good it's a good way to work with. And now in Germany, I have like a thousand different strains, but just two oils. And that's nah. there's the different problem. In Germany, for example, you just have to write on the product the CBD and THC amount. So I have 42 different strains, but I just know of each of them, the CBD and the THC amount. I don't know nothing about other terpenoids, uh, uh, other cannabinoids. So this is 42 strains. If you just have these numbers, it just makes no sense. Okay, so when it comes down to it, it's actually the patient that's going and uh, kind of going through a process of trial and error um, through those dozens of strains that you have access to. I mean, in real life, yes, it's the patient. Uh, it should be the doctor. I mean, we should have enough information to decide which is the best strain for, for the corresponding patient. But as the situation is in Germany, that they just have to write CBD and THC uh, as active principles um, on, on the list. So you cannot have as a doctor the, the information you would need to be able to decide which strain to use and which patient. So it And frequently it's like this, that the patient gets several types prescribed and then you... Um, then you you start testing and the ones he likes the most he gets and after if you work a little bit more time with cannabis uh, in this sector you start to know okay this strain it's a little bit more for that and this is more for that but from sites the, no one is obligated to write down terpene or, or cannabinoid profiles mm -hmm. on, on, on on the packaging and that should with the knowledge we have nowadays this should be like being indicated there right. So you've got all this experience uh, treating patients in, you said, in Berlin and in Barcelona, um, also in Brazil. Um, Portugal. In Portugal, Portugal sorry. We have, yeah, we are Calapas collaborating with the Portuguese mm -hmm. Observatory, the ones who organize here or participate in the event as well. Mm -hmm. So we have a couple of por Portuguese patients in, in Calapas as well. This is like just trying to, to, to reach the people who need to, to get reached. Okay, so I, I'm interested to hear when you've got this experience with a few different systems, what do you think would be the ideal system uh, for you as a physician and also for the patients um, to make sure that, you know, access is easy and, and you can uh, treat in the way that uh, will end up with the best outcomes? I mean, I, now like having work in the, in the Spanish and the German system, I would like to have like some mix kind of thing. Um, I mean, in, in, in Spain, there's more the culture about us that people are 
worrying less about the, the stigma at mm. least which is something in Germany super straight I mean in Germany the stigma of cannabis is there's not so much cannabis culture in Germany in Spain there's more looking in, in years back I mean in Spain there are huge cannabis conferences like Spanabis and stuff and there's a very important ones from the sector in Germany in Mary Jane in Berlin it's nice but not comparable for example so I think this is a mix of both would be interesting uh, in terms of the culture behind it because I think this is very important to have this stuff as well that people um, see uh, get in touch with with education about what it is what what's working with that plant I'm not just talking about cannabis I'm talking about all the I mean it's uh, it's seen in a way where, where it's not it is not especially in medicine and we need to do education about it in Germany for example you have a lot of events which are either purely weed smoking or purely medical Uh, and that's a problem because we are leaving behind a huge part of that group, which are the patients mm. and the patients where they go to the weed congress where like everybody is smo smoking and you get the, like the, the biggest bong and the longest paper. It's not for the patients and to the medical one you also don't get because people are not going to understand. Like, mm. It's way too professional and way too too to to detailed for for them to understand so this is a problem that the patients don't don't have nowhere to get in touch because they have to um feel that as well i mean the stigma is there for the doctors the stigma is there for the patient as well and a lot of people don't talk about it and they feel like kind of guilty by using it mm -hmm. in terms of people with other medical drugs like opioids or benzos feel completely normal and the cannabis patient feels like kind of he's doing something wrong we need to educate them as well so they're comfortable with that with their treatment i think and what do you do with your patients uh, to kind of help them get past that stigma um and and get the the treatment that they need I think for that the 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 f most important thing is where what I mentioned before, like to have a good, long uh, first talk about not just about we have to talk about the medical problem, to talk what possibilities of treatment are there. I mean, real perspectives, like not as well like you're going to be cured tomorrow. No, it's often like a process. We need real goals which are reachable. Is important, and then to educate about how it's working with side effects, with effects it can have. I mean, uh, to explain a little bit the how cannabis work in our body and if we have that talk in a good way i think they are prepared and they feel comfortable the best example for that is if the takikari mm -hmm. if i if i don't tell any if, if i forget that part or if you don't explain well that part and you start to treat let's say like a person over 70 have never never uh, taken cannabis and you don't explain that it's possible that you can have a little acceleration of the heart for like maybe five minutes maybe ten it's nothing to worry about you open the window breathe in relax and it's gonna be gone it's perfect if you explain that's okay if you don't explain that and it happens that he gets uh, the heart beating increases he gets nervous he say oh god what is this why did i take this this drug everybody told me i should not have taken it and i would stupid went there took it and you start this negative thing because you have it in your mind the first times you take right. it and you didn't know about that this is normal this can happen you can get panic attack and you're never going to touch this medicine never again right. uh, and it's just one sentence if you say look it's like this when it can happen breathe in it's normal it can happen the patient's going to remember oh, no the doctor explained me that this can happen well it's not so comfortable but i have to relax and then it's going to work mm -hmm. and actually it's like this 10 minutes later you're the comfortable you're probably going to sit down and you feel way more relaxed with it but this is like little 
important things which they have to mention but like this with a good with a good first uh, uh, medical visit and talking about the aspects i think patients can be good prepared and then in society there's like education for everything everything and everybody need it. but uh, this is like a different a total different process i think it's all about education really when it comes down to it thanks very much for joining us thank you to be here With me is Dr. Ronnie Sharon for a little section we're calling Ask the Doctor. So, Ronnie, how are you doing today? Hey, Mike. Good to be here. So, what I want to talk to you today is a question that actually keeps coming up because, well, my parents keep asking me. And that is, can cannabis help people sleep? Um, in particular, older people. So, um, first off, is this something that you recommend cannabis for to, to your patients? So I think it's a really good question, and it's something I come across every single day. We cannot give cannabis for sleep. Marijuana's indications don't include sleep. I practice in New York, and that's not one of the conditions we can give it for. Nonetheless, it's the number one thing people use it for in my practice, but we don't give it necessarily for sleep. And I'll give an example. If someone has chronic pain, very often, three months after starting cannabis, they'll come to my office and they'll say, marijuana really helps my sleep. And as a result, I have less pain, I'm moving more, I'm able to exercise more, and I feel well-rested at night. And that's something I hear all the time. And how do they use it? So in general, when I give recommendations for cannabis, I'll recommend more CBD in the morning and more THC at night. And I do find that THC can significantly help people fall asleep and often stay asleep. Now, an important question with sleep is, how's the quality of the sleep that they're getting? For instance, if you sleep on a plane six hours, it's probably not equivalent to you even sleeping two or three hours in your own bed. I can attest to that. And there's different stages of sleep. There is early sleep, you know, when you get awoken right away and you're awake right away. There's the deeper stages of sleep where if someone wakes you up, you feel very groggy. And there's a stage of sleep called REM where you're very often dreaming in that stage of sleep. THC and, and marijuana in general actually positively impacts some of them and negatively impacts other parts of our sleep. What about for somebody who doesn't necessarily want to take THC, either because of the side effects, you know, dry mouth, for instance, or maybe because they just don't want the psychotropic effects of it. Is CBD also something they can use, or is that less uh, an effective tool? Well, I think before we get to that, we have to take a step back and find out why someone needs something to help them sleep. Right. And sleep is one of the most integral things that we do in our lives, and it's incredibly important. Um, trouble falling asleep very often for me as a doctor means someone has anxiety. Trouble staying asleep means they could have another condition such as sleep apnea or something else that causes interrupted sleep. Not feeling well rested or waking up early has its own ramifications. Why is someone taking something? Why do they need anything? And we actually use a lot of things for sleep, whether it's NyQuil, sleeping pills, other pills, our phones to distract us, TVs, Netflix, other things. 
but we need to figure out why we're not sleeping well before we get to the question of whether it'll improve sleep. So very often, marijuana can help with someone's anxiety. And anxiety is a big reason people don't fall asleep. So as someone gets in bed, they turn off the lights and they prepare to sleep, their mind might be racing. And that's a big problem because when your mind is very awake, you can't fall asleep. If marijuana can help your anxiety, it's probably going to help you sleep. If marijuana does put you to sleep, it might be a distraction. You're not thinking about the things you were thinking about before. On the other hand, marijuana actually keeps people awake very often. And it'll depend very much on what strain they're taking uh, in order to see if it helps them or not. What I found with my patients is that it's a little bit of trial and error, but eventually most people find a strain of marijuana that really calms them and helps them sleep. And you said that oftentimes insomnia or sleep uh, disturbances are a symptom of something else. Does that mean that it is necessarily a temporary solution or is it something that people use long term? It's a really great question. And the jury is still out over the long term if, if marijuana is really beneficial or harmful for people's sleep. Uh, what I can say is that I'm pretty sure we're going to find out that it's both. I think for some people it's beneficial and for some people it's harmful. We know that cannabis reduces REM sleep. REM sleep is about a quarter of our sleep, doesn't change as we get older. And with that sleep, that's when we're dreaming and we can actually move three parts of our body. We can move our eyes, we can move our lung muscles so we can breathe, and for men, they get erections. That part of sleep is responsible for when we dream, and what we're actually doing is we're consolidating a lot of the memories that we had throughout the day and remembering them long-term. The most classic example is learning how to play the piano. We're remembering numbers and digits. We do that in REM sleep, and marijuana reduces REM sleep, so it might negatively impact our memory in that way. At the same time, it increases our deep stage of sleep, which is like the golden grail. As we get older, we sleep poor quality and we don't get deep stage sleep. And marijuana actually increases that, and that might be very beneficial in the long term. So it's kind of a mixed bag. That's really helpful. So who's, who's an ideal candidate, an ideal patient for, for using marijuana or cannabis um, as a sleep aid? So people who have found that cannabis really relaxes them and allows them good quality rest, they're good candidates. The important thing before I recommend it long term is first of all to explain the risks and benefits, to look for other reasons why they have trouble sleeping, and to make sure it's not negatively impacting them in another way. After I do that, and if they're feeling well rested and strong and energetic in the morning, that's a great treatment for them and they should continue that way. Other things I warn them about is sometimes there's kind of a little bit of a hangover in the morning if people take marijuana before, but that could be tinkered and played with. Uh, other things I warn people about is finding the right strain because actually some people, you know, it's not a uniform thing. It's very individual. Different strains affect different people, but finding the right one will really improve someone's quality of sleep if that's the treatment for them. And what about how they take it? Uh, is there a difference between inhaling it or taking it as a tincture under the tongue or, or you know, ingesting an oil through the GI tract? So really great question. Again, it's a little bit personalized and individual. In general, I think that the vaporizer is a better way because you can really dose it exactly to how much you need. 
it's a faster onset and it leaves your body a little bit faster. It leaves a little bit less of the hangover. I recommend less edibles because it lasts in your body for longer, but the oil tincture is wonderful. For sleep, though, wouldn't you want something that's going to last longer? Well, it depends. Most people sleep on the order of five to eight hours. The ideal is that someone will sleep seven hours. So I don't want something that's lasting more than six hours because I want someone to actually have everything out of the system if it impacts them negatively while they're awake. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Sharon. My pleasure. Good to be here. I'm Michael Schaefer Omerman. This episode was edited by myself, produced by Alana Goldberg and Matan Whale, and our sound engineer was Yoav Morgoth.